This is episode 333, where we're chatting about everything to do with tracking and understanding what tools to use for your ketogenic journey. We're going to be talking about clinical research and treatment options, symptoms and risk factors, tools and strategies, including continuous glucose monitoring, levels app, biosense, all the little biomarkers to help us in monitoring our metabolic health. It's a good one. Our guest today is Dr. Dominic D'Agostino who's a professor in the Department of Molecular Pharmacology and Physiology at the University of South Florida and research scientist at the Institute for Human and Machine Cognition, the IHMC. His laboratory develops and tests metabolic-based strategies for neurological disorders, cancer, and for enhancing safety and resilience of military personnel in extreme environments. His research is supported by the Office of Naval Research, the ONR, Department of Defense, the DOD, private organizations, and foundations. You can find more from Dr. Dominic D'Agostino by going to his website, ketonutrition.org. And I'll also include links to his Twitter and Facebook in the show notes. If you have questions about today's content, you can go to healthfulpursuit.com slash contact and ask me. You can catch up on previous podcast episodes and notes from today's show by going to ketodietpodcast.com. Okay, let's do this thing. Welcome to the Keto Diet Podcast, the show all about keto for women so you can burn fat, balance your hormones, and heal your body. Starting and maintaining keto can be challenging without the right support. So just for listening to the podcast, I want to give you 20% off the keto beginning with the coupon code KETOPODCAST. That's all one word. This 30-day program gives you a clear step-by-step how-to so you can quickly adapt to a ketogenic diet, avoid common struggles, and get the results you crave. Go to help healthfulpursuit.com slash begin to get your keto beginning discount today. If you're new around these parts, I'm Leanne Vogel. You may know me as the international bestselling author of The Keto Diet, founder of happyketobody.com, or maybe you know me as the nutritionist that likes dipping pork rinds in avocado oil mayo. I'm so glad you're here with me today. Thanks so much for listening. Hey, Dom, how are you today? I'm doing really well. How are you? I'm so good. I'm so glad to have you on the show. It's been years in the making. I'm so thrilled that you get to be here today. Thank you for the invitation. I appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Of course. So you're kind of the name in keto. So I feel like you don't need an introduction, um, but we'll just go with how, in your words, how did you get involved in all the work that you're doing today? Yeah, I guess I was always aware of the ketogenic diet and went through nutrition program at Rutgers University a long time ago, back in the mid 90s, where the ketogenic diet was not really considered a favorable thing to follow. I was not even educated on the clinical use of the ketogenic diet for its main application, which is seizures. And after doing completing my PhD in neuroscience and physiology, I went and did a postdoctoral fellowship training, essentially on ways to predict and prevent seizures associated with diving, diving operations that the military does. So I was looking into various drugs and I discovered that the ketogenic diet is actually used when drugs fail and it's a very powerful neuroprotective anti-seizure therapy, which kind of blew my mind that a diet could produce that. 
And then I connected with the leaders who were studying this and uh, managing patients at Johns Hopkins. And I remember at Barrow Neurological Institute, Dr. Jung Rowe, he's at University of San Diego now. And all the top people at top tier institutions convinced me that this was a very powerful anti-seizure metabolic therapy. So I became very interested and fascinated to learn more and how I could leverage this therapy into my research. And that was 2008. And at what point did you personally go keto and what did that look like? Like as your studies were bringing you closer and closer to keto, at what point were you like, "Hmm, maybe I should do this myself? Yeah. Well, I wanted to really personally experience what it was like to be in ketosis because when you read about it and you learn about all the benefits, you know, you want to experience it. It's not, we study a variety of different pathologies and I would not want to take many of the drugs that are used to manage those pathologies, but a diet was kind of up my alley. And I think it was in 2009, I started experimenting with the Johns Hopkins ketogenic diet protocol. And I remember getting a book from Dr. Eric Kossoff and who was trained by the late Dr. John Freeman, who really advanced the use of the ketogenic diet for epilepsy, not only in the pediatric population, but also in adults. So at the time, the ketone strips were like $10 a piece. And I remember, I'm not even sure the company exists now, but I bought like a commercially available monitor, which was like this big box. And it had like the strips were like super expensive. I remember I got them and then they were like expired in like three weeks and I was mad and and it was, yeah. And things are cheaper now, but there's still ketone monitoring and testing has is evolving, and that's great. When I did the ketogenic diet, it was like the medical form of the ketogenic diet, and then a year after that, the modified ketogenic diet came out for epilepsy in adults, and that was much liberal with protein, and it was actually a diet that I could kind of follow, and it gave a lot more flexibility with a higher protein, and it was actually clinically used, so. I experimented with that and we sort of incorporate a version of that in our research. And have your personal experiences influenced the work that you do? Like as you're experiencing things on keto, are you curious, like, why does this happen? And has that influenced your work? Yeah, absolutely. So I thought it would be very useful to understand what it feels like to be in ketosis, but also how to change the diet and optimize the diet in a way that would make it easier for people who are unwilling or unable to follow a very restrictive ketogenic diet. So that actually led me down the path of developing and testing various ketone supplements, exogenous ketone supplements, including ketone esters and ketone salts, and also formulating a ketogenic diet that was high in MCT oil at different ratios. And so a big cornerstone of our lab is really trying to move this therapy and making it more palatable, literally more palatable and more efficacious by formulating ketogenic diets in certain ways and also developing ketone supplements because some people really cannot tolerate a ketogenic diet for different reasons. It's just, there's various reasons people have a fat intolerance or sometimes they just, it's very overwhelming for them. Like you have many listeners in the beginning discussing macronutrients and things. It's just very overwhelming for them. So if you could develop a supplement that could give you the anti-seizure benefits, that can be very useful. So we've put a lot of time and effort into that. 
Amazing. And camps go back and forth on this. And I feel like you're the one to answer this question. And maybe you've gotten this before once and for all. Do ketone supplementation like exogenous ketones, do they stop you from burning fat? No, no, they don't. Well, you have to consider like a ketone supplement is, we call it a fourth macronutrient, right? So you have carbohydrates, of course, and protein and fat. And the carbohydrates will produce the largest insulin response. So that theoretically will curtail fat burning. Protein is much more moderate, about a third insulin response. Then you have fat, which is like really no insulin response. And ketones, if you take a large enough dose, it will attenuate fat burning, but it's less than protein even. So your body has many mechanisms that can sense the energy that you're putting into it. But when you're eating fat, it sort of bypasses that circuitry in a way because you maintain a level of insulin suppression. So your body still thinks it's sort of in a semi-starvation mode. And because of that, you can consume calories that don't prevent you from losing weight by consuming fat. And you can maintain your nutritional status. That's really what the ketogenic diet is, but maintain the semi-starvation physiological state, which is what we call therapeutic ketosis. So it's accelerated fat burning that contributes to the production of ketones, which has anti-seizure neuroprotective effects. So what's very interesting is that you could follow a high carb diet or a standard American diet and add ketone supplementation. And that can actually give the benefits of being in therapeutic ketosis, not all the benefits, but some of the neuroprotective benefits, and even with a high-carb diet, actually reduce your glucose and even reduce your insulin over time because ketones can help uh, improve insulin sensitivity over time. A large dose of ketones could potentially spike your insulin a little bit, but the overall effect of consuming ketone supplements would be an increase in insulin sensitivity. So that could potentially, and this is, you know, we see this in animal models and I think the human studies will show that too, if they haven't already improve metabolic markers. hemp hearts. Let's first talk about why they are so unique in a class of nuts and seeds. Well, they're actually considered a seed and how they make the perfect addition to your diet. Hemp hearts are rich in fats, but not just any fats, the good healthy ones, the ones you want to fill your diet with to help reduce inflammation, support joint health and balance hormones. Hemp hearts have six times the omega-3 of raw tuna, four times the omega-3s as most fish oil supplements, and they're rich in fiber, promoting gut health and helping aid digestion. They're also a rich source of plant-based protein containing 10 grams of protein per 30 gram serving. What's unique about hemp hearts is unlike many plant-based protein sources, they contain all 20 amino acids and all of the nine essential amino acids, making hemp hearts one of the best plant-based protein sources, or if you ask me, the best. Hemp hearts are rich in micronutrients such as iron, magnesium, B vitamin, zinc, vitamin D, vitamin E. It's said to be nature's multivitamin as it contains high daily value percentages of those micronutrients. Also, for women struggling with hormone health, which is basically everyone of us. (laughs) It also contains GLA, which is extremely healthy for women's hormones. You can go to 
eatenhemp.com slash keto diet. Use the code keto diet, all in caps for 25% off. These are the best of the best hemp parts that exist, guys, because they're backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. If you don't like it, you get your money back. And this company rocks. So if you go to eatenhemp.com slash keto diet, use the code keto diet, all in caps for 25% off. Give them a try and let me know what you think. Again, if you don't like them, just contact them and you will get your money back. Another misconception that people argue with back and forth on that seems silly is what you just said of taking exogenous ketones while you're still having carbohydrates. A lot of people say that's super dangerous because you'll have really high glucose and really high ketones at the same time and it's an acidic state. Thoughts? Okay, so there's some debate around that. You have to look at it in context, right? If you were to consume a very large dose of a ketone ester, and there are various esters on the market and booster ketones up to five millimolar, it is true that you are producing a state of metabolic acidosis, but not any more than if you were to get up and I was to sprint, do a couple wind sprints back and forth and sit down, my lactate levels would be elevated and I would produce a metabolic acidosis that's above and beyond consuming an exogenous ketone supplement. So I view it from the perspective of a a systems physiologist where we measure all these markers. And so it's a mild metabolic acidosis that we compensate through respiration and our kidneys can manage that pretty easily. Although if you, you could give high enough dose, and we've done this in animal models, where it could produce the pathological ketoacidosis. But I'm not even sure that's possible with the the ketone supplements on the market. It's self-limiting. You're just going to have GI distress way before you actually ever reach that. So, and it's also, it's important to understand from our perspective is that when your ketone levels get really high, it actually has a negative effect. There's a sweet spot that's probably somewhere for an average healthy person, like around one to two millimolar. If you have a disease like glucose transporter deficiency or epilepsy, then your level, you might want to be about three to four millimolar to manage that severe disease. But for the average person looking to get benefits, about one to 1.5 is actually what I find personally. And I think when it gets higher, then your body does have to deal with that acidic load. And so I don't think spending lots of money on a ketone ester to get really high levels, unless you're going to be a Navy diver or you're doing some kind of special operations <laughs> activity, then of course, that's what we study. Then, then we see the advantages of higher ketone levels, but not for the everyday person. Wonderful. Thanks for that. Mm, Those are two sure. things. There are questions I get constantly and it's good yeah. to kind of get that out of the way. <laughs> yep. And so what projects are you working on now in your work? I'm sure you have a lot of different things on the go. What are some of your favorites? Yeah, earlier today, we or this afternoon, we had a lab meeting and one of my PhD student is actually doing a project where she's looking at the epigenetic effects of ketones. And we are looking at different markers. We're studying it in a genetic disease that's called Kabuki syndrome. And it's a rare genetic disease where we believe extending the work of Johns Hopkins, where they looked at the ketogenic diet as an epigenetic therapy for this disorder, we are kind of coming in and using a 
standard diet and adding ketone supplements to see if we can move some of the epigenetic markers in a favorable way that would enhance the neurological function. And we have Kabuki syndrome mice and the implications of a preclinical study would be if it's efficacious, then we can develop a clinical trial. So that's at the very basic science level. And then at the like the human, more tangible level is the work with a Florida medical clinic, Dr. Allison Hull. She has a fantastic wellness clinic where we just got IRB approval for a 12-week study where we're not looking at people. We're using continuous glucose monitor technology, a CGM with the Levels Health app. And I think you've had Josh Clemente on talking about Levels at one Josh point. Josh yeah. and a whole bunch of people from the team because I'm obsessed oh, with Levels. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I use, uh, you know, I use that CGM system with the software. So this study is not looking at diabetes. It's not looking at people that are overweight. They're just kind of everyday people, maybe inclined to lose a little bit of weight, but it's the title of it is Improving Cognitive Behavior and Cardiometabolic Health with Continuous Glucose Monitoring in normal healthy subjects. So we're looking at markers of behavior and we're looking at using CGM and using the Levels Health software as a behavioral tool to improve food choices and adherence to a diet. And we're also doing a whole suite and battery of uh, biomarkers, including ketone levels. And we're looking at insulin and high sensitive C-reactive protein. And we're doing a very comprehensive cytokine analysis on the people. So we can correlate that CGM data and see how it correlates with insulin and how it correlates with our inflammatory markers and specific cytokines and things like that. When you go into projects like this, do you have an idea of how they're going to end up? Have you been totally blown away with results and been like, wait a minute, I did not expect that? Or do you kind of have a feeling of how things are going to go and you're just going through the motions? I've always wanted to ask you that question. (laughs) It's a good question. Before we did this, we were not really because, you know, the ketogenic diet is. I live in a bubble of ketogenic diet, (laughs) people that are very interested and willing and able to do this. But we have to understand that it's very overwhelming for people. It's like drinking from a fire hose when it's like, okay, I want to be involved in study and you give them books to read and literature and send them some videos or even like measuring using a blood ketone meter. And I remember the person went through like 10 strips. They would prick their finger and put it on the strip and then stick the strip into the meter and like went through a whole like 20 or 30 it's like this thing doesn't work i was no you have to stick it into the device you go follow there's like stuff things like this and it can be kind of overwhelming uh for people just macronutrients so we did a pilot study where we had like a dozen people basically we put cgms on them and we just basically trying to understand if they would scan it, if we would be able to get usable data from them. And, you know, we collected some blood data and I just sent that off to the lab actually and waiting to get that back. And this was the pre-pilot. So as we do with our animal work, we take a cohort, a small cohort and run some studies to look at the feasibility of doing all this. And so we'll have some idea of what the study and mostly how to troubleshoot the study when things come up. So 
we have a general idea. I mean, we have a hypothesis going into it that CGM coupled with the Levels Health software, we think will improve adherence and outcomes above and beyond, but we just don't know the magnitude. And if it's in normal, healthy people, is this like going to move the needle? Or, you know, we have an indication that for people with diabetes and people that are obese and overweight, that it can make a difference. But the real question is, is this technology going to be helpful for people who just want to optimize their metabolic health and think about longevity and even performance? And so do people reach out to you with ideas or as you're working, you come across something that needs to be proven and then you move forward with it? Like, what's that process for you? Yeah, well... I think it's, we try to answer questions that are relevant to the general public. I work with a lot of foundations and in many cases, like the people behind the foundations have kids that have a terminal disorder or some kind of genetic. So we was like, well, how can we best use our resources to answer a question to get the data that can help you? And it's like, we try to get, I feel like I kind of have a pulse on the community because I get so many emails and through the website and through multiple email accounts and I'm able to kind of vet out what the most important questions are. And then we try to direct the research to really contribute not only to the scientific community, which is important being in academia, you have to get high impact peer reviewed publications to keep my job. Like there's certain metrics that you have to, so I have to do that. But at the same time, we try to do not science for science sake, but try to do science to really have immediate and actionable translatability to the general public. So when we do a study, I can actually like do what we did in that study and have, if I'm looking at some, but the research that we're doing is translatable. So that's the main gist of our mm, theme for amazing. our lab. Yep. And so once you have all these results, how do you get it out into the public? Are the foundations moving the information forward or how do you, that might be kind of discouraging if you work so hard on something, you got to be able to get that information out so things change. What's that process like? Yeah, I'm glad you asked. So the cornerstone really is to do good science that is published in like peer reviewed journals, ideally with like a, a high impact factor. And then it's accepted by the scientific community. But the one thing that I, I kind of do maybe more than other like basic science researchers is that I believe in outreach is very, very important. So your podcast provides an incredible database to people who are not going to go on PubMed and actually read the studies, but you break down by having guests on, you know, you can break down the science and have it translatable to them, actionable to them. And I find that's like more important than the science really to, because you're really impacting people in a great way by creating this platform and putting that information out there. And it's not, it goes outside the walls of academia where we just kind of live in a little bubble. So I try to do a variety of different things by going to scientific conferences, mainstream, and then we host the Metabolic Health Summit with my colleagues. And that's a big event where we have clinicians and scientists and also 
influencers and companies that are scrambling to get to this space because it's such a rapidly developing area of commercial interest too. And we give them a platform to talk about their technologies, to talk about their clinical research, basic science. So that's an important aspect of what I do. But we also have ketonutrition.org website where we put out a blog article every two weeks and we break down the science. So if an important article comes out or we have an important article, we break down the science and translate it to the public in a way that it can help them. And there are many people who are very confused when they want to follow a keto diet or a low carb diet, and they think it could be potentially dangerous or someone tells them it's the wrong thing to do. So we try to break it down and we do where I try to be honest about the potential side effects, myths about there are dozens of myths about the keto diet. And we can talk about that and side effects. There are real side effects. And a lot of my presentations are the half of it is talking about the side effects of the ketogenic diet and how to mitigate it and control it, mostly from the context of like the clinical super high fat ketogenic diet used for pediatric epilepsy. But a lot of my sort of clinical based, like speaking at American Epilepsy Society or other society conferences, we need to address those issues. Keto flu, impossible fasting symptoms that stop you mid-fast, cravings at any hour of the day or feeling off after a sweaty workout, these are some of the signs that you're low in electrolytes. When I first started keto, I made all of the mistakes. One of the biggest ones was not supplementing with electrolytes. And still, seven years into keto, I often forget how essential electrolytes are. Honestly, it's easy to forget to take electrolytes because, well, a lot of them don't taste very good or work very well. Enter Element, the most delicious, well-balanced electrolyte powder I've personally tried, like ever. Add to water and enjoy any time of day. These electrolytes are salty, as they should be, quenching your thirst and hitting the spot. And the best part, when you head to drinklmnt.com slash KDP, you'll receive a free Element sample pack. You only pay $5 for shipping. The sample pack includes eight packets of Element that includes two citrus, two raspberry, two orange, and two raw unflavored. Go to drinklmnt.com forward slash KDP for your free sample pack. I love Element and I really think you're going to too. Again, that's drinkelement.com forward slash KDP to get your free sample pack. And if you don't love it, they will refund your $5, no questions asked. I find the last two or three years, there have been a lot of people online, specifically on YouTube, making these really, really long videos about how dangerous the ketogenic diet is. I don't know if you've seen that, like nutritionists, dietitians, doctors, have you seen those? And what are your thoughts when you see stuff like that? Well, I'm very deep into that because I study the ketogenic diet for it's like pretty much it's only clinically approved application. I shouldn't say only, but it's pediatric epilepsy, now adults, and then a wide range of metabolic diseases too. It's accepted. And then there's all these emerging applications like type 2 diabetes, type 1 diabetes, a number of different things. So I'm able to communicate with people at institutions who have managed patients on a ketogenic diet for literally over 30 years. And we're talking like continuous ketosis, not the keto diet that, you know, but like legitimate, like 80, 90% fat kind of, and they have to do it. So to manage their chronic illness, but 
there are a number of side effects like kidney stones were a very real problem with kids. They were like five to six times more likely to get kidney stones. But then we used in earlier studies, but the use of potassium citrate and ensuring hydration and newer versions of the ketogenic diet that was not like this liquid formula that was like soybean oil and hydrogenated fats, which is given many of the clinical trials were using these kinds of uh, commercially available keto formulas. So our knowledge of the ketogenic diets and different fats that are healthy fats versus unhealthy fats, but pancreatitis, fat intolerance, a lot of these things, nausea, constipation in some cases, uh, ketogenic diets that were like pretty much based on dairy fat can create some issues in the blood work as far as lipids and things like that. So now we have an understanding of reducing saturated fat, maybe from dairy and adding more monounsaturated fats to improve lipid profile and things like that. So our knowledge has been evolving over the years. And also nutrient deficiencies, selenium. Kids were coming showing selenium deficiencies Carnitine deficiency was kind of ubiquitous in the beginning. And it makes sense, right? Because carnitine is basically moving fat into the mitochondria. And it's like, you're burning so much fat, your body's like oxidizing huge amounts of fat and it's using up all the carnitine. So we want to make sure that carnitine supplements are important, especially for kids, or if you're not getting a dietary source of carnitine. So a lot of my early talks were really addressing the side effects of the ketogenic diet and how to formulate ketogenic diets that could be optimal mostly for a therapeutic perspective, but now more for like everyday health perspective too. Wonderful. And so you mentioned levels as a CGM, as a tool. Are there other tools that you've used in your practice or your research rather and tools you see up and coming that you're pretty excited about? Yeah, uh, I think there are different biomarkers I think are really important. And the most important biomarker that we should have a handle on is glucose, right? And you can, fasting glucose is just a small snapshot, but a continuous glucose measurement can give you immediate feedback on postprandial elevations associated with different meals, types of meals, size of meals, how medication is impacting our glucose, how sleep, things like that, stress. So that becomes a really important biomarker. And then the CGM is super interesting technology, but really it's the software that interface with the user is super important. And that's what Levels brings to the table. It brings the application of CGM and makes it usable to the everyday person and understandable. And it has an algorithm that can even predict what you've eaten and give you advice and give you information and actionable advice. And so measuring ketones is also important if you're on a ketogenic diet, obviously. And there's a phenomenon that athletes tend to register lower ketones than you would expect because their bodies are very adept at burning ketones as an energy source. And when you're fasting or in a calorie deficit, I noticed that my ketones were lower than expected, but my breath ketones were higher than expected. So I measured hundreds, if not thousands of times, blood ketones with different meters, and I measured and I correlated it with breath ketones. And it was very apparent to me that breath ketones were was a vastly superior biomarker for monitoring fat oxidation by far. And also, I was very interested in breath ketones, uh, and the ketone that you measure in the breath is acetone. So your body makes three ketones in circulation, beta-hydroxybutyrate is 
is more stable. So that is in about a three to one or four to one ratio in our blood. And we also make acetoacetate, which can spontaneously decarboxylate to acetone. And acetone is volatile and we blow it off in our breath. And we can measure that with a high degree of accuracy with, for example, the readout health biosense uh, meter, which is very a great device that I use. And I was very interested in acetone 10 years ago because the data indicated that beta-hydroxybutyrate was really not very good at predicting seizure control. And I that was very surprising to me. But the research indicated that acetoacetate and acetone correlated very highly with seizure control. So that led me to develop various exogenous ketones that would elevate uh, acetoacetate and acetone, but we didn't have the technology to measure in breath. So now we have the technology to measure in breath, which is very good for my research on ketones and neuroprotection. But I think from a broader perspective, when you're blowing high amounts of acetone, it's like you're blowing out the exhaust of fat basically. And when the meter is pinned on the breath ketone, it's almost like fat is melting off my body. And I could see this when I do like a 72 hour fast, like I have a pretty fast metabolism. I can literally see like in the course of 24 to 48 to 72 hours, like my skin gets super thin. It's like, and my breath ketones would be totally maxed out, but my blood ketones were only like 1.2, 1.5. And I'm like 48 hours fasting. You're in a calorie deficit. So you're disposing of the ketones and tissue. So it's not actually registering and it's kind of satisfying. So if you want a biomarker, that's a true reflection of fat oxidation that will give you the satisfaction of understanding that you're at a high fat oxidation state. I think the breath ketone meters are superior. And now we want to do a more comprehensive data collection to really nail down our understanding of how the dynamics between beta-hydroxybutyrate, acetoacetate, breath ketones, insulin, and glucose, and how all those biomarkers change during a fast. That's amazing. And I guess with the beta-hydroxybutyrate, something that I noticed, you know, being keto for eight years, testing my blood would be pretty high. But since, I don't know, six years in, seven years in, eight years in, it gets lower and lower, but I really haven't changed much. You were mentioning athletes because they're so good at burning that their ketone levels are going to be lower. Is that, we kind of look at urine testing as kind of being the first little thing. If you just want to see where you're at when you first get started, it's okay. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, it doesn't really work. Then there's blood. Does that only work for a certain period of time? Do we know whether or not over time it gets lower and lower as our body becomes more efficient at using Mm -hmm. it up? Yeah. So I'm going to throw out some terms that are kind of nebulous, but we talk about metabolic health as kind of a nip and, you know, metabolic flexibility. And then people use the term keto adaptation from a basic science research perspective. These terms are thrown around a lot, but they're not really given objective definition as to what they are. We do know that when you go on a ketogenic diet or you fast, for a period of time, there's an upregulation of our ability to oxidize fat. So fatty acid oxidation enzymes, ketolytic enzymes, which are enzymes that allow us to derive energy from ketones. And then we have ketone transporters. There are a variety of transporters in the blood-brain barrier and our cells and in our mitochondria, we activate a genetic program essentially that upregulates the enzymatic machinery and also the transporters 
that allow us to use fat and ketones for fuel. So our ketones in our blood are a balance between production and use. And then when we follow a ketogenic diet for a protracted period of time, we upregulate the mechanisms that allow the ketones to go pass into the cell, into the blood-brain barrier, into cells and into mitochondria. So we're pulling it out of our blood faster, similar to a type 2 diabetic that is goes on a drug like metformin or actually goes out for exercise. They're clearing the glucose from the blood faster. With time, we're doing the same thing with ketones. So we can see like in our animal models an upregulation of the transporters. So we are better adept at using ketones. And that's a function of reducing glucose availability too, and also reducing insulin. So if we're on high carb diets, the insulin is higher and that stimulates glycolysis. So the cells are hungrier for glucose, but a ketogenic diet or fasting will suppress insulin signaling. So the glucose tends to like baseline doesn't change that much and insulin's low. So the cells are less hungry, but the ketone uptake is sort of meeting that there's a transition to using ketones for fuel and fat relative to glucose. So we're clearing it from our blood faster. So that's an important concept to understand when you're measuring ketones, especially in the beginning. I guess a good example to sort of demonstrate this idea is that when you're in a state of ketosis and actually you consume carbohydrates and you're really quick to measure ketones, you'll see your ketone levels spike up if you consume sugar and carbohydrates. So the carbohydrates and sugar is essentially having a ketone sparing effect. So you're using both fuels. It's not like one or the other. We have to look at this on a spectrum. And if you're in a high state of ketosis and you consume carbohydrates and you meticulously measure ketones over time, you'll see your ketones go up. And I remember this was very confusing to me, like what's happening. But essentially what's happening is that introducing carbohydrates and glucose back into your system is having a ketone sparing effect. And then the ketones get elevated, but then the carbohydrates will cause a secretion of insulin and your ketone production will come down and then your ketone levels will come down. But that initial spike up was very interesting to me. And another example of ketone utilization is what I call a ketone tolerance test. So you can consume glucose and then you can do a pharmacokinetic analysis of the glucose going up and then clearing from your bloodstream. If you're metabolically fit, you come back to baseline very quickly. Similarly, if you're on a ketogenic diet and you're a healthy fit athlete and you consume exogenous ketones, you see it spike up, but it clears out of the system within. And someone that's a super athlete, I can see it like clear in an hour, which is amazing. But if you take a person that's a couch potato who has not used the ketogenic diet, it could stay elevated for like six to eight to 10 hours. So that's an example of not impaired ketone utilization. Their bodies are just not fine-tuned to using that as an energy source. So the more you do the ketogenic diet, similar to the more you do fasting, the more benefits you derive from it, but also the greater ability to actually use that energy source. Brilliant. I really hope you're enjoying today's episode. I'd love to see where you're listening from. You can snap a pic and tag me at Leanne Vogel or leave a review for the show on your favorite podcast player. It helps me out tremendously. Okay, back to the good stuff. Are there supplements you can use to support your metabolic health or adjustments you can make? 
Yeah, I think keeping the liver, the liver is a master regulator. It kind of calls shots in your body. So keeping your liver healthy by doing periodic fasting, right? But there are a variety of different supplements out there like alpha lipoic acid and magnesium, I think is important with the ketogenic diet. Magnesium, it helps make you calm. It helps take the edge off. It helps us sleep, but it also contributes to at least three or 400 enzymatic reactions. So magnesium can be beneficial. And for me, on a nutritional status test, it was the one thing that was low. I remember in like 2011 or 12, I went and my magnesium was below normal. And I was like, wow, I had quite a bit of it in my diet, but I supplemented magnesium. And now that's one thing that I do supplement. Uh, carnitine, I think is important too, to help transport and utilize like long chain fatty acids. Selenium and some other things are probably important, especially if you're not eating like I'm a big advocate of eating things like organ meats and liver and sardines and egg yolks. And, you know, they're in my eyes, the optimal ketogenic diets, more like a keto carnivore kind of diet where your nutritional needs will be met. Even on a small amount of calories, you can meet your ketogenic nutritional needs and prevent deficiency. So what I have seen is that the traditional clinical ketogenic diet that's dairy based leads to nutrient deficiencies. Whereas a diet that's more carnivore-ish, although I'm not, I'm an advocate, I'm an omnivore. So I'm an advocate of eating plants and like I'm a carnivore vegan, I guess, but with ketogenic macros, but eating those foods instead of having a dairy-based ketogenic diet can actually, if you look at blood work, it makes a huge difference in the nutritional status of the person. And I think that's really important for your listeners out there because you can become nutrient deficient following like the old classical ketogenic diets. Yeah, I really love how you said, I'm a carnivore vegan with ketogenic <laughs> macros. That is my yeah. MO 100%. <laughs> oh, okay. I eat much more, a higher intake of vegetables now than I did growing up on a high carb diet. So, which maybe I would have a little bit of iceberg lettuce with dinner growing up, but that was about it. But now I have at least one salad and probably some stir fry vegetables. And, and then we have stuff on the farm too. So, and I incorporate fruit too. Occasionally we have some citrus fruit and berries, but my carbs are between like 50 to a hundred, hundred on days that I'm really active, but generally around 50 to 75 ish. Yeah, that's the same for me. Sometimes mm -hmm. I go upwards of 150, depending on where I'm at in my cycle, you know, and cycle timing it. And I find that's really beneficial depending on where I'm at. But I agree with you. I think yeah. keto's really come a long way in the last eight years of understanding if you just want it for, because you're a healthy human and you're just trying to help your metabolism, that it's a different thing than a therapeutic use of it. Yeah, there's low carb, which I basically put under the umbrella of like 100 grams of carbs or less you know, non-starch, non-sugar, you know, maybe a little bit of fruit, but then there's very low carb, which is under 25 or maybe under 50 or 25, depending on how you define it. And then ketogenic, which is the only diet that's really defined objectively by the elevation of the ketone biomarker, which can be measured in urine, breath, or blood, right? But I think many of your listeners could get a lot of the metabolic benefits, essentially making their body more fat adapted by just simply doing low carb, which is like 100 grams of carbs a day, if your metabolism's fast, or maybe 75, because the standard American diet is much, much higher than that and incorporates processed carbohydrates or starches and things like that, that can, our bodies 
never experienced that state of ketosis. Alternatively, you can get into a state of ketosis by doing intermittent fasting and not necessarily having to restrict carbohydrates to that level. But if you do eat high carb during your intermittent fasting, your glycogen in your liver will be replenished to the point where you're not going to be making ketones during that 18 hour window or however much you're time restricting. So it's a ketogenic diet makes intermittent fasting easier by keeping a lower level of glycogen depletion. You have more glycogen depletion in the liver, so you can enter a state of ketosis faster. And then, you know, if you look at a CGM, that will tell the story. Your blood glucose gets lower and more stable. And a CGM really opened my eyes to blueberries. I have wild blueberries, but they spike me quite a bit. But if I mix the blueberries with sour cream, I know that might sound odd, or coconut cream, and then I put in like baking cocoa chocolate and some stevia or whatever, and that's like my dessert I have every... It basically attenuated, if not abolished, my glycemic spike. And I usually put about a half cup of blueberries. So it goes from like spiky to like no spike just by mixing it with fat. So that's like an important thing. And also I learned that like ice cream and cheesecake were okay. I had like, I could almost stay in ketosis and have like no spike at all with those foods. So using a CGM actually opened the window to foods that I thought I was avoiding. Whereas things like oatmeal spiked me tremendously, a sweet potato. I was thinking, oh, sweet potato, but sweet potato spiked me up. There was a list of foods that I thought were kind of okay that were super spiky. And then a list of foods I completely avoided that I now have because of the CGM, the insight that the CGM gave me. Yes, I can relate to. I hadn't had beans since going on the ketogenic diet and tested every single bean and nothing. Huh. Whereas your blueberry is my blackberry. No matter what I do with blackberries, I spike so high. If I add fat, it doesn't matter. If I add protein together, nothing. Like blackberries for me are a no go. So isn't that fascinating? Really? I'll have to try that. You know, my wife makes a lentil soup and I was like, lentils, oh, that's going to shoot me through the roof. But she put like some bacon and things in there to spice it up a little bit. And I was just, okay, I'm going to eat a huge bowl of lentil soup. And it just, it like barely moved my CGM. And I was like, wow, I can have lentils. And I was like, well, let me check my ketones the next morning. It's like, boom, it was like higher than it was if I was completely keto. So like lentils are very, it's like super cheap. It's pretty high in protein and it's like extremely, at least for me. So I had that, you know, I did it the next day and I was like, yeah, this is some kind of fluke. So I tried it over and over. So lentils would be like super friendly. I would have totally not known that if I didn't wear a CGM. Yeah, never. It opens yeah. up so mm-hmm. many doors and, yep. and it's totally worth it. I think for all people to wear it at least for a month. Yeah. I've had it on for about a year or more now and I enjoy it. I like having that. It's like an extension of my body kind of, and I'm always testing things, including supplements like glucose lowering supplements and and various things, but just simply wearing it for 28 days, you could pretty much test whatever you're going to test within 28 days, right? Of different foods and meals and things like that. It's also very interesting to wear when you're fasting. If you're like, I try to do like a quarterly 72 hour fast and it becomes really interesting to watch how CGM reacts to fasting in those mm-hmm. like longer fasts. Completely, completely. Mm-hmm. Dom, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It was so great to chat with you. And I'm going to include the link to ketonutrition.org in there and a couple of your other links in the show notes so people can access. Where can people find more from you? Is that the best place to go? 
Yeah, I think so. Or follow me on social Instagram. I try to post about the things we're talking about. Maybe I'll post some cow videos and pictures too (laughs) (laughs) from our farm or training here and there. But yeah, keto nutrition is kind of like the one-stop shop. And we have blog that we contribute to. We post about once every week or two on that and sign up for our newsletter too. So any products that I'm testing, experiments that I'm doing, we send out that newsletter with different, you know, discount codes and things like that. So thank you. I I appreciate being on your platform. I know you've gotten hugely popular over the years and you're a dominating force, especially in the the female ketogenic diet realm. So I appreciate you having me on and, and giving the opportunity to talk about what I do. Yeah, you're welcome back anytime. Thank you. Appreciate it. Next up on the podcast, Wednesday, September 15th, it is episode 334. And we're chatting with Jenny Holbert about sweating in sync with your menstrual cycle. I know that some of you have been waiting for this episode for a little while, so I'm so excited it's finally out. And then Sunday, September 19th, episode 335, we're talking about seven solutions for keto beginners. We're kind of going through how to navigate the ketogenic diet when you first get started. It's a good one. Can't wait to see you there and have a great week. Okay, bye. Thanks for listening to the Keto Diet Podcast. Join us again in a couple of days to discover more Keto for Women secrets for your fat-fueled life. Music for the Keto Diet Podcast provided by Yechi. Follow Jacob on Instagram at Yechi underscore official and on Spotify as Yechi. That's Y-E-C-H-I. The Keto Diet Podcast, including show notes and links, provides information in respect to healthy living, recipes, nutrition, and diet, and is intended for informational purposes only. The information provided is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment, nor is it to be construed as such. We cannot guarantee that the information provided on the Keto Diet Podcast reflects the most up-to-date medical research. Information is provided without any representations or warranties of any kind. Please consult a qualified physician for medical advice and always seek the advice of a qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding your health and nutrition program.